Thanks for pressing play. Normally, I start these things off by trying to give you an overview of the dialogue you're about to hear and maybe uh, tease you uh, with a little bit of why you should stick around and, of course, tell you a little bit about the guest. Uh, I'm not going to do that today. (laughs) All you really need to know is legendary author Dushka Zapata is back. And um, if by chance you're a new listener, um, she was our first ever guest. She's been on more episodes with us than any other guest. And all I'm really going to tell you about this dialogue is Dushka is breathtaking. And dare I say, uh, the world needs more Dushka. I also want to let you know that she will also be appearing very soon on an episode of the Changing Lives podcast with my friend Dan Cassetta, who's one of the most... uh, kind-hearted and um, deeply principled men I know. So if you like Dushka, check out Changing Lives podcast with Dan Cassetta. And I also want to let you know, in an act of uh, radical generosity, Dushka has decided to make all of her books available for free. She's written 10 of them. All of her books will be available for free on March 17, uh, 2021, of course, the ebook version of those books. March 17, 2021, go to Amazon.com and everything Dushka's published in a book will be available in ebook form for free for a 24 hour period. And uh, this is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. We are an award winning real dialogue podcast, and we are built for people who believe in the power of authentic conversations to make a difference. Our friends at NetSuite are the cloud platform you need. NetSuite by Oracle is the foundation for legendary businesses. Visit NetSuite.com slash different today. Our friends at Splunk are the world leaders in data to everything, bringing data to every question, every decision, and every action. Visit SPLUNK.com slash D, the number two, the letter E, as in data to everything. And our new newsletter, Category Pirates, has set sail. Visit Lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com, and get your uh, subscription to Category Pirates going. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Dushka, my love, how are you? Christopher, it is a complicated question these days. I'll just tell you that I'm really excited to be talking to you because I feel like the pandemic has changed everyone's relationship landscape. And um, I'm just happy that you're here. Well, I'm happy that I'm here and I'm especially happy that you're here. (laughs) So what's been on your mind lately, Dushka? Um, I actually have a bunch of things to read for you. Um, You always ask me to read something and this time I gave it some thought because uh, I'm working on a new project. I wrote a book a few years ago, I think maybe a year or two ago, um, called Love Yourself and Other Insurgent Acts That Will Recast Everything. And a lot of people read that book and were were like, you've convinced me that I should love myself, but I don't know how. Like, I understand the why, but I don't know how. So I'm working on on a workbook that's like a manual where I talk about my own experiences and encourage people to fill out parts of the manual so that they can write their own book about how to love themselves. And I thought I would read you just some things that 
I have like two or three things to read you that are worth thinking about. And in this, this past year and a half that has been so hard for all of us, it's just giving me a lot of time to think about what that looks like to me. And so I just felt that it was like the right time to help others determine what it means to them. Excellent. I'd love to hear it. Okay. The first one answers the question, what does it mean to make your well-being a priority? Uh, and my answer is, I know you should make your well-being a priority is a really obvious statement, but what exactly does it mean? If you set the alarm to get up and go for a run, but you haven't been sleeping well, what is the right thing to do for your well-being? Go back to sleep and get out of bed or go for a run? If you're struggling with anxiety, do you work through your feelings or look for a distraction? What is best for your well-being, time alone or time with others? If someone in your life holds a position of great importance, but your relationship with them is toxic, do you cut them out of your life? What is best for your well-being, your history with them or distance from them? Doing what's best for your well-being is really difficult. Sometimes it's impossible to tell. Hmm. So that's number one. I have, I have many, but I'll pause there and see if you have comments or questions. Well, the first thing that pops to mind is just you've expressed something that I've felt but never really thought much about. But there are moments, and actually uh, I've had a couple recently now that you're surfacing it, where what is the best thing for my well-being and the well-being of others is not always clear. You could make a compelling case for one or two or in some cases three choices. So it is a dilemma, is it not? It's really hard. Um, I find it incredibly hard. And I, I think that especially when the entire world has changed and when, you know, just like the glue that held us together has changed its fundamental composition, I feel like it's even harder to tell. I'll give you a super quick example. I know we talk a lot about me being really introverted and you being extroverted. And an example is, what do I do when I really don't want to spend time with anyone, but I'm also really lonely? Both, both of those things. And I think that the only way to answer these questions is to spend some time on your own so that you're not hearing other people's voices in your head and you can hear your own. Like, what is best for me right now? is a question that we should be asking ourselves and really giving some thought to and just being compassionate with ourselves and gentle with ourselves. Because I, for one, tend to always feel like I'm not trying hard enough. And that makes it very difficult for me to identify, for example, that I need to rest or that I need to do less or that the fact that I'm not doing a thousand creative things is okay. But I also feel like most things we want are misdirected, which is what my next little answer is about. And I'm going to read it to you because it's like a, sort of a different facet of the same of the same thing. And I see you giving me the thumbs up. So I'm just going to plow right ahead. Most wants are misdirected. I want ice cream because it's cold and creamy, but really I want to be soothed because I'm nervous about where my life is going. And ice cream is easier than figuring out what it is that I need to do to not be a cyclical catastrophe. I want a big bowl of crunchy, salty things, but really I'm just tired. And what I want is to unwind and give my brain a break and feel like I have a place to set myself down. I want clothes and shoes and shiny things, but really my closet is already full. And what I want is something that addresses the emptiness and the absence of beauty. I want a lover in a hotel room and an afternoon out of time. But really what I want is to go back to when things were simpler and maybe to feel pleasure in place of all this jagged loneliness and complexity. My brain tells me she wants something because it's easier to want that than to identify and quench the want that is real. So the first thing that jumps to my mind is that our surface wants 
our surface wants. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. And that is why we were like, why am I getting what I want and I'm still not happy? And that's why we're dealing with like dissatisfaction. And that's why we're dealing with like the crisis of, I have everything that I want. And what is it? What is it that I want? And I think we often confuse what we really want with the superficial want. And I don't have anything against actual ice cream and an actual afternoon in a hotel room, but I think that it behooves us to pause and wonder what the want actually is. And sometimes the want hurts, which is why we don't want to look at it. Yes. And sometimes, you know, Eating a half gallon of ice cream or uh, running off to a nice hotel with somebody you want to canoodle with for an afternoon. Okay, great. No, there are big sort of things along these lines that can be very damaging. You know, drug and alcohol abuse come to mind or, you know, spending abuse. I This guy I know tried to talk me into buying a really stupid car. And it's like, well, what am I going to do with this fucking car? Like, I, it's right. great and everything, but like... I need this thing like I need a hole in the head. And of course, hopefully as we, uh, as we spend more time on the planet, we learn that there's a fleeting nature to those things. But, but why is it, Dushka, do you think we're sort of fooled by the shiny object to give us something that it's actually not going to give us? Yeah, well, I think for one, the shiny object is fun. I mean, I can say nothing against canoodling, right? I mean, it is really quite satisfying. But I also think that looking at what we actually want requires more work and it sometimes requires the undoing of something that we're very comfortable with. So it's a lot easier to kick back and eat a bowl of salty, crunchy things rather than like, look at the fact that I'm, you know, suffering from an absence of pleasure in my life. What does that look like? Like one requires a pretty major dismantling of what I already have and the other one doesn't. But I think that what happens when you take a look at what you really want is to get back to my original subject, more in the service of doing what's right for you and more in the service of answering the question, what is it that is the right thing for my well-being? And the fact is that many things that we do to reward ourselves or pamper ourselves or take care of ourselves are not really the thing. I actually want to read you something, which is all of these things are the point of me collecting them in in a one pager for this conversation is that they're all related. But the other one is kind of like taking that same multifaceted thing and like turning it another degree is the fact that we get stuck in a lot of things that we completely forget that we can change. Have you ever felt really, really happy and have been certain that like clearly another, the other shoe is going to drop? Have you ever felt like there is some kind of curse to happiness? Like sort of, Hey, it's awesome right now, but don't worry, it's going to suck any minute from now. Exactly. Exactly. So this post is a little bit calling attention to that exact feeling. And I'll read it to you. You know what we do? We settle. We find ourselves in a certain situation and convince ourselves this is what it has to be. I feel trapped in my relationship. I've gained 20 pounds. I don't like my job. I feel a constant state of anhedonia or ennui. This is life. I can't change this. No one is supposed to be happy all the time. Never, ever believe mediocrity, low-grade despair, or meh is what you have to live with. Things can always get better, even when they're really good. Identify what you should not have to be okay with and devise small steps to get out. Do something that inches you closer to your escape every day. And remember this, there is no limit to how happy you can be. I remember at points in my life, Dushka, feeling like, I was so happy, so contented 
that there were very few people in the world that I could share my true experience and feelings with, because if I did, you know, it would sort of sound over the top or ridiculous or so I know that that's a very, very powerful place. And I've uh, been lucky enough to be there. Uh, I haven't been there for quite some time, <laughs> but I think that's for sort of extraordinary circumstances. But how would one, if I said to you, I want to spend a meaningful percentage of my life in that spot. How do we do that, Nushka? I, I don't know how I feel about the pursuit of happiness in and of itself. I don't know if I believe in it. To me, it's less about being happy and more about feeling like what I'm doing has a sense of purpose. So I could argue with the definition of happiness or the pursuit of happiness in and of itself. But I do think that in our belief system, we are like, I'm so happy that I can't share this, which is what you just said. Or, oh my God, the other shoe is going to drop. Or, oh my God, I don't deserve this. Or, am I good enough for this? So I know that we, and by we, I mostly mean me, like maybe it's just me. But I think that I live in a constant state of sabotaging my own happiness because I feel like maybe it's too much. So to me, the notion that there's actually, like if I'm looking at it in a reasonable way, there's no limit to, there's no logical limit to how happy I can be. There isn't a, a, a higher being monitoring my amount of happiness. So I think that if there were a first step, it would be to remove my own tendency to sabotage my own happiness. And if there were a second step, it would be about identifying the want that is real, right? And if there were a third step, it would be about truly understanding what the difference is between, you know, the superficial want and the deeper want. And if there was a step before that, it would be related to what does it mean to make myself a priority? And I think that that requires sort of a multi-layered peeling back of what is actually happening. What exactly is hurting? What exactly are we feeling like we're responsible for when we're not? And how do we identify the stories that we tell ourselves that are not real? And I think that a lot of what makes us unhappy are the lies that we tell ourselves. Hmm. What kind of lies, Dushka? I'm so happy that you asked me because that's the next thing I want to read you. <laughs> well, I figured I would just throw the ball down the middle of the plate because I figured you might hit it. Here we go. I walk into a yoga class and I feel really stiff. I have not done yoga for several days. I worry this class is going to be difficult and that I'm not going to enjoy it. I feel stiff. That's a fact. The rest is just a story. My coworker is acting really aloof. Is it me? Did I do something to offend him? Is he mad at me? It's true that my coworker is aloof. The rest is just a story. I text someone and he doesn't text me back. I spin out. Why isn't he texting me? Does he not care? Does he not want me? Is he not interested? Is he with someone else? Why is this happening to me? It's true that he's not texting me. The rest is just a story. Be aware of the things that are fact and the things that you add. Whatever it is that you're adding is just a story. I know that there's suffering in the things, but the suffering is actually in the story. I love that. And I think it certainly has been at times in my life. I think it could be confronting for people to realize that there's the thing, the fact, and then there's the story about the thing. And what causes the pleasure, the pain, or anything in between is actually the story about the thing, not the thing. You know, you take a simple example like money, right? 
Well, money's a piece of paper. It has no inherent value. It's a fucking piece of paper. The only reason it has value is we've all agreed it has value. And when one of us gives the other one of us $20, that means something. But the only reason it means something is the story we have about that piece of paper. I could tear a sheet out of this notebook in front of me and hand it to somebody and ask them for um, some gum and they wouldn't give it to me because the story about the green shit is different than the story about this lined white shit. (laughs) But that can be a hard thing when you realize, well, then life is just the story that we tell ourselves about the facts. You know, I love thinking about that. I love it so much because we, we live within the architecture of our own fabrication. Of course that there's a lot out there that's real, of course, but I suffer so much from things I'm convinced that I'm responsible for, that I'm not responsible for, working so hard to make an effort for things that don't actually require any effort, feeling so much pain related to like this ego, the stories my ego tells me that are actually not truly taking place, or if they are taking place, they don't really matter. And that's why I feel it's so worthwhile to conceive of myself as the person who thinks my thoughts rather than the thoughts, because not doing so guarantees me a life of suffering over things that are not actually there. And to me, a really central part about around learning how to love myself has to do with making a distinction between the things I believe that are not true and the effort that the, the enormous amount of energy and effort that I expend taking care of things that were never my responsibility and all of the beliefs that I can just drop and like nothing in my life would change. Like basically maximum effort compared to minimum effort would not change the result of whatever I'm efforting over. And that's why I think it's so important to look at and so hard because if I fabricated the architecture how can I question it? I, it's, it's a very, very difficult thing to do. Well, and the other question I would sit next to that is, did we fabricate the architecture? In some cases we did. We, we proactively, if you will, designed our lives. And actually, as radical as an idea as this is, it's possible to choose personality traits. It's possible to choose our behavior. We're not just in a stimulus response. You can say something that makes me think or feel one way, and I might want to express that, but I have the ability to pause and go, do I really think or feel that? And I can decide in that moment whether I agree with myself or not, regardless of what it is. So we are not in a stimulus response. And so I guess my point in that is there is the fabrication that we proactively architect, that is to say, Who do I want to be in my life? What kind of life do I want to have? What kind of relationships do I want to have? What kind of work do I want to do? What kind of difference do I want to make? Et cetera, et cetera. However, we also have the sort of fabrication that gets stuck on us that we decide is true. So in grade three, a teacher tells you you're very creative. And so now you're creative or says to you, You know, you're not very, somebody says you're not very attractive or they give you a terrible nickname about the way you look. And so the rest of your life, you don't think you're very attractive. So in other words, there are these moments in life where somebody puts a sticker on us, 
like they would maybe on the side of a piece of luggage. And we wear the sticker like it's true as opposed to deciding, well, maybe I like that in grade three, my teacher told me I was creative and that's a powerful thing for me to think about myself. But you know what? Maybe it's really disempowering for me to think of myself as ugly. And the kids in grade three told me I was ugly. And so I guess my question is, how do we, Dushka, get thoughtful surface this architecture and be thoughtful about what we choose to kind of hold as quote unquote true our story and the part of our story that we're holding that was given to us by somebody else that we can say hey wait a minute that doesn't serve me that's bullshit how do i get smart about that so first of all i don't really know the answer so i'm just going to wing it i feel like i i try to find the answer to reduce my own suffering and that's what i'm going to share but i don't want to make anyone believe that I believe myself to be a authority on this, that this is why I call myself an amateur. But what I would say is you have identified two lies we tell ourselves or two stories we tell ourselves. One is, this is something that I am questioning. I see this coming at me and I'm questioning it. And the other is one that is so invisible to us that we can't, we can't question what we can't see. And that might be, well, I've always been told that I'm creative. So clearly I'm creative. And to me, the answer to your question is, what exactly is it that I am believing that is making me suffer? I'm going to, and that is the, if it's making you suffer, that is the sign that you should be questioning it. Here's an example. One of the things that has made me suffer a lot throughout my life, surprisingly, I didn't know that this was happening. It took me many years to put this together. But when I was a little girl, I was the oldest of all my siblings. And my father from birth, like basically like my birthright, was like, you are responsible for taking care of your siblings. You are responsible for people around you. And to me, that was like a sacred anointment. And I drove them nuts because I, I, I basically meddled and got into their business and just felt the weight of the, the false notion that you're responsible for another person. And we're not. We're not responsible for other people. We can barely be responsible for ourselves. And so I identified that that wasn't true you know, 30 some years later, because it, it was just hurting too much. I was like, I, I, I'm responsible for all of these things that I have no control over. I'm exhausted and I'm exhausting them and I'm affecting all of my relationships. Like I have to stop with the belief that I'm responsible for other people. And that that's one example. And the other example, which I think is super insidious that I wrote about and that I'll read you, I'm going to read you just a very quick list of things that I didn't know I was not responsible for. You are not responsible for keeping the peace or making sure others are getting along. You are not responsible for another person's expectations on you. You are not responsible for what another person thinks about you. You are not responsible for explaining yourself. You are not responsible for how another person behaves. You are not responsible for helping someone, for getting someone to love you, which I will talk more about in a moment. You are not responsible for helping, rescuing, or saving anyone other than yourself. You are not responsible for another person's happiness or any other emotional state. You are not responsible for how your boundaries make another person feel. You are not responsible for being anyone another person wants you to be. And I don't know about you, but when I read this list, I literally, my calendar's clear, completely clear. These are the things that I spent most of my time doing. So freeing yourself, and it's, of course, it's a practice. You don't just drop it. You, you, you remind yourself every day, I am not responsible for another person's happiness. I am not responsible for how my boundaries are making you feel. 
I'm not responsible for getting someone else to love me. How another person feel about who feels about me is there or it isn't. I cannot make another person feel something for me, which I will read more about in a moment because it's such a big one for me. But anyway, that is the long-winded answer to your question, how do you identify it? And my answer is, whatever is making you suffer, look at it and question it. The other part of that that I find fascinating, so I find that your list incredibly freeing. And the other part I find fascinating is when you invert that list, when you say, I am responsible for all of those things in your own head, even if you never sort of truly think about it, it's just sort of the context you're living your life in. You can't affect any of those fucking things anyway. Exactly. Exactly. That is so huge. It's like you, this is what I meant about expending all this effort and or not expending any effort and accomplishing the same thing. So what do you want to do? Flame out, completely burn out over something you have no control over because you have somehow decided that you're responsible for it or just not do anything and just assume that other people can take care of themselves. And it's, to me, it's like, so incredibly huge and so incredibly freeing. By the way, there is an author called Byron Katie who wrote a book. I think the book is called The Work, but it, it's all about like a methodology for questioning your own beliefs. And I want to mention her because if anybody wants to read more about this, she is the authority on questioning what you believe in. Um, it's just a very simple sort of like questions to ask yourself to to change the course of what you have believed in that I, I have found really, really helpful. What, what's her name again, Dushka? Byron Katie. Byron Katie. Excellent. She calls this the work. The work. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to circle back to the point you were on before you brought up Byron Katie. There's another sort of fascinating, crazy thing about this, which is if we say... You know, the greatest thing we can be is, is true to ourself and authentic to ourself. And uh, we can't affect how people think about us anyway. So then if you get to there, here's what I wrote down as we were talking about that, as it relates to my, my experience and relationship with you. I love and adore you. And the reason I love and adore you is because of who you are. Therefore, if you begin to modify who you are for some reason to try to get me to love and adore you, you will actually make me love and adore you less because most people can pick up when people are being phony or inauthentic. And so there's this built-in insanity, which is we want to be loved for who we are. And as my friend Bix Bixen says, for who we are not. And if somebody loves you for that, the worst thing you can do to them is begin to modify yourself to try to make them love you. <laughs> Am I making any sense here, Dushka? You, you are making so much sense. And I think that one of the things that we do to get someone to love us is like, how can I be useful to this person? How can I be helpful to this person? Which in turn makes you meddle in that person's affairs constantly. It, it, is, it is basically, an, it's an absence of boundaries and it's so hard to not do because we are under the impression that we have to earn how someone feels about us. Let me read you this. This is exactly what it, it's about. When, when I understood what I'm about to tell you, I felt I had been shot with a truth bullet. Here it is. The best things in life happen without my intervention. I don't need to do anything to be loved. I am loved because I am me, and this requires neither action nor effort. 
I don't need to be on my toes for someone not to cheat on me. I don't need to take care of him or keep him under constant surveillance. Loyalty is the default and cheating is the anomaly. Betrayal is not supposed to happen and I don't need to do anything to ensure that this remains the case. I don't have to convince, persuade, or chase anyone or win anyone over to get or catch either a good friend or a significant other. Love in any iteration is like gravity. I don't need to do anything to keep my feet firmly planted on the ground. These things are so true that if instead I decide to act, to exert effort, to work at it, to aggressively pursue, to supervise anything, I attract unhealthy relationships and wonder where to cast the blame. I walk away from any dynamic that requires me to compromise my peace of mind. I do less, a lot less. I do nothing and witness an upside down life right itself. Thank you. Thank you. So that is exactly what you said, which is the more you do, the more you mess it up. That That, that yes. is not what you're supposed to be doing. And yet we allow ourselves to become increasingly busier on all this stuff that we are not supposed to be doing. And this is, of course, the origin of like codependency and unhealthy relationships where you're supposed to keep the other person happy or where you miss the other person's expectations that were never voiced. Like, and it all begins with the practice of self-love and like, who is it that I am? What is it that I want? What is the actual want? How do I know how to make my well-being a priority? All of those things. And they're hard because they require a lot of self-reflection. And Dushka, don't you also think, or I'm curious as to your reaction, that it also requires self-responsibility? All of those questions, when I hear you say them, they sit inside a context of, you know, the, the old Dr. Seuss, if it's meant to be, it's up to me, that I'm responsible for my life, I'm responsible for it. And the confronting thing about that is, every time my life's in the shitter, if you take that mindset, well... You're responsible for it. The good news is if you're responsible for it, it, you can get yourself out of the shitter. But when your life's a mess, saying you're responsible can actually be a painful thing to look at. Absolutely. Um, a lot of what I write about, like a lot of like the common thread has to do with taking responsibility. And that's because the more we blame, the less power we have. Like it's painful to be responsible but it's the only way, if you cannot control others and you can control you, then responsibility is the only way to be free. If you blame, you're stuck because you can't change what others do. So if you're like, why does this person keep hurting me? Why, why does he keep hurting me? Why am I in a, this relationship where he keeps hurting me? How can I change him so he stops hurting me? So if you, if you exercise, how can you change that question and put it on yourself? The question becomes, why am I in the company of someone who keeps hurting me? And then you place the responsibility in, on you, and suddenly you have an ability to do something about it. But it can't, you know, there's in business, we have this thing called the theory of sunk costs, right? So there's a project, and you're going to invest some amount of money in it. And, you know, bigger companies, it can be tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. And you see it all the time. You know, Apple six months, or excuse me, Microsoft six months or so ago announced that they were shutting the Microsoft stores. Well, it was obvious within sort of six weeks of them opening that they were a failure. They were just a knockoff of the Apple store. They looked exactly like the Apple store with one notable except, exception, customers. Anyway, they finally shut the thing and they lost billions. Now, on its face, 
it, w- it was obvious that they should have shut it a long time ago, but there's this theory in business of sunk cost. Well, you know, we've invested a billion dollars or $10 million, or if you're a small company, you know, a, a $30,000 investment can be a massive investment. And, and we quote unquote, throw good money after bad. Well, the reality is we do that emotionally and intellectually. Yes. We were told before this call not to speak over each other. And you have no idea how hard it is because I just want to like, I just want to like spar with you. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, mostly to say emphatically, yes. I mean, I think that this theory of sunk costs is exactly why people stay in relationships that where they're not happy. I mean, I've already invested so much in this relationship. I've already invested so much in this job. And that goes back to what I read you about settling. No, there's no limit to how happy you can be. The theory of sunk costs is, is, um, it's cognitive distortion. It is keeping you in a place where you're not supposed to be. Um, you said something that I thought was super interesting about responsibility and blame. And I want to talk, uh, there's this thing I wrote exactly about that. Um, I, I really like our conversation because the order of things that I was like, maybe I'll read this and maybe I won't, is like kind of happening naturally. And I want to talk about parents because of all of the things that our parents do or say that then we're like, well, my parents messed me up, right? So I, which they inevitably do because you can't be a parent without messing up your kid. That's sort of no matter what you do. So anyway, um, this is, this post is about taking responsibility for everything. Parents don't know what they're doing. This is not because they're incompetent. It's because they're human. Even when they love us madly and are doing their best, they mess us up. We grow up scarred from all the times that we didn't get what we needed. And one day we become adults. There is so much power in being an adult. I am no longer small or helpless or defenseless. Whatever it is I feel I did not get as a child, I can now get for myself. By this, I don't mean just permission to get ice cream anytime I want, although yeah, I definitely grant myself permission to get ice cream anytime I want. I mostly mean getting my most primal, most fundamental needs met all the time by me. Dushka, I see you. I am listening to you. Dushka, I believe you. It means I learn how to calm myself when I'm stressed, anxious, or afraid. It means that when I'm in the grip of strong emotions, I can give myself the chance to feel them. No more, Dushka, please, don't be so emotional. It means I can set and hold my boundaries. It means I can take care of myself. This might mean making sure I'm getting enough sleep. It might mean deciding I don't need to earn the right to rest. It might mean mean keeping track of all the things that make me feel happy so that I can have more of those things. The best thing I've ever done for myself in an effort to get me what I need is to make room in my life to create, carving out the time I need to write every day. Anything you do to stand up for the kid that you used to be and still are since the adult part is just a disguise is incredibly healing and I can't recommend it enough. I fucking love you. <laughs> I love you back. You know, uh, when you were talking about ice cream and, and stuff, I was reminded, I, I don't know if you remember, there's a Seinfeld episode and I can't remember the scenario, but he talks about how when you're a kid, your parents and often it's your mom says, you know, don't eat that. You're going to ruin your appetite. And he makes the comment of one of the great things about being an adult is you can ruin your appetite anytime you want. (laughs) Absolutely. And my logic is I don't want dinner to ruin my appetite for ice cream. Exactly. We might therefore need to eat the ice cream first. So we have as much room for the ice cream as we want. And, you know, uh, maybe a little less room for, I don't know, for example, the kale salad. <laughs> um, the, it's the greatest to be an adult. 
I mean, it really comes with a lot of responsibility, but the fact that I don't need to ask for irrational permission for things and that I can give myself this permission, the fact that I tell, that I can tell myself, I am listening to you, or I believe you, or no, you don't have to take care of all your siblings. It's just the greatest. Yes, it, it is very freeing. Now, I also, one of the things I really want to share with you and get into with you, if, you, if you'll go there with me, I think for many of us, myself included, uh, you know, C-19 has been quite the journey. And uh, you know how much time I spent in epidemiology school. But we recently had um, New York Times bestselling author Stephen Kotler on. And he said in one form or another, this thing's going to be hanging around and we're just going to be dealing with it in one way or another for the better part of a decade. And I have a fear that, I don't know whether he's right or he's wrong, but the sense I get is that many of us have this anticipation that we're going to turn some corner here in the relative near term. And you, you, you're you hearing more and more, at least I seem to be hearing more and more about when we quote unquote get back to normal. I have a feeling, A, this thing's going to take a lot longer than maybe we're realizing. And B, there's not going to be a turning back to normal. There'll be a very slow movement towards being able to be near each other the way we used to. And it, it may, that there's some component of what Stephen is saying might be true. So anyway, with all that said, if the virus crisis and everything that's come with it is actually going to play out over a longer period of time than many of us have been feeling and hoping, you know, how, how do you think about sort of dealing with this thing over a long period of time? So again, from the perspective of an amateur, because I don't have the answer. Have I ever told you Einstein's quote on, how, not quote, but his definition of time? I don't, if you have, um, it was too many whiskeys ago for me to remember. So please remind me <laughs> or tell me for the first time, whichever. So I love his definition of time because he was a physicist. It's like a physicist definition of time rather than like some kind of like fluffy thing that I can't really get my, sink my teeth in. So he, he says time exists so that not everything happens at once. And I love that because whenever I feel overwhelmed, what I'm really overwhelmed by is that whatever happens next, I have to deal with all at once. And the only thing I can tell you in answer to your COVID question is that I have the freedom and the luxury of taking it one moment at a time. That is all we can do. Do not say, what are we going to do for the next 15 years or the next 10 years or the next, you know, two decades of this, or what am I going to do for, you know, just one moment at a time is all we can do. And trust yourself and your own abilities that you will be able to handle that one moment at a time. And what about, you know, I think many of us human beings try to be optimistic, tilt that way because it makes, I don't know, I think life a, a, a different place to live, having lived in an op optimistic mindset and a pessimistic mindset. Uh, I know where, where my life works better. And so, particularly of late, we've been optimistic that maybe some kind of a corner might be turning and so forth. And my, my fear is that um, that might not be true, or that if we are turning a corner, it's going to be a much longer corner, and that there will be two meta ramifications. There'll be all of the ramifications of what we've had in the past, the disease itself, the recession, the racial tensions, 
the echoes of, of the election, et cetera, will be elongated as a result. And that there'll be sort of a collective kick in the, in the balls to humanity's psyche because I fear that if many people were thinking we were rounding a corner and we're not, or the corner is much longer than we think it's going to be, that the, uh, you know, to put it bluntly, Dushka, the mental health impact of that is going to be uh, significant on top of the mental health impact that it's already been. So if that were to be true, if we knew another gut punch was coming, you know, what, how would that make you think about the present moment? I would think I need to take care of myself. I need to make sure that I am at my strongest when the next kick happens. I need to get some rest. I need to sleep. I need to be as healthy as I can. I need to take care of my mental health. And um, to go back to the beginning of this conversation, I need to identify what it is that I need to do for my well-being. What actually is that? And follow that. It, it, it's not the solution to everything, but it's what we have. It, it's it's what, with, what what is within my reach is to say, how can I take care of myself? Because if I don't take care of myself, I can't take care of others. And then what is it that I can do for others in a way that is be, um, within my reach and that is reasonable? You know, basically not at odds with all of the responsibilities that I can't take on. So now's a time to be, to sort of circle back to almost pretty much where we started around well-being. Now's the time to be acutely aware of our well-being because if there's some reality or potential, and I, I hope I'm wrong, I hope my radar's off, and I'm not trying to be pessimistic, but we have to circle back to our own well-being because we've, if we know challenging times are coming, mentally, spiritually, psychically, financially, on whatever, di all, all dimensions, it's time to squirrel up some nuts here. Absolutely. I think that this is the, the perfect conclusion to our conversation. Taking care of yourself is the most responsible thing that you can do. It literally, taking care of yourself and your well-being literally means that it's, it's like we are all boats and we all carry other people. Who takes care of the maintenance of the boat? If the boat sinks, you are useless to others. So what is it that you need to do for the boat, which is you, to be functional for others? The most responsible thing that we can do, the best thing that we can do, is to think about what the best way to take care of ourselves is. Yes, it's interesting. I'm reminded of, um, there's a mantra uh, that first responders get trained in. And I forget the exact phrasing, but the, uh, directionally, it's uh, don't make yourself a victim, right? So when you see, we see it here living next to the ocean with, with the Coast Guard and our fire department here and our ranger service. They all have the ability, you know, uh, they all have swimmers, life-saving swimmers. And, um, you know, rule number one is you, you can't just go diving in after somebody. If you, if you put yourself in a situation where you're a victim, now we have two victims, um, and so the first thing to do is don't make yourself a victim. I actually think that that's an excellent mantra. And I, and I think that it applies to the pandemic and the situation that we're living in. But I also think it applies to life, which is the better you take care of yourself, the less you make yourself a victim. I, I, it's fantastic. I, I can't think of a better way to wrap this, actually. Excellent. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on, Dushka? 
No, I love you so much. And I'm always so grateful to connect with you through these conversations. I love you and I adore you. And I sure hope you'll come back very soon. Deal. Well, and there she is, the legendary Dushka. And uh, now you know why I think the world needs more Dushka. And if you'd like some more Dushka right now, go check out the Changing Lives podcast with my buddy Dan Cassetta, because uh, Dushka doesn't do very many podcasts. And so uh, she's done a whole bunch with me, and now she's done one with Dan. So check that out as well. Now, in times like these, being flexible and being adaptable is actually critical to both surviving and thriving. And that's where my friends at Oracle NetSuite come in. See, with NetSuite, the flexibility is built in. You can scale up your business. You can spin part of your business off. You can adopt new business models. Um, you can move to multi-channel e-commerce. Uh, whatever it is you need to do with NetSuite, the flexibility is built in so you can quickly and easily change and adapt your business. There's a reason 63% of recent tech IPO companies run NetSuite. Check out netsuite.com slash different today for your free product tour. That's netsuite.com slash different. And as you know, legendary businesses today are digital businesses. And the last 12 months or so have accelerated the need for digital transformation. That's where my friends at Splunk come in. They're the leaders in data to everything. Splunk allows you to build a more resilient organization, accelerate your cloud transformation, and exceed customer expectations all at the same time. As a matter of fact, legendary pizza company Domino's turned to Splunk, repositioning itself as an e-commerce company that happens to sell pizza. And when that global chain shifted its focus to digital channels and emerging technologies, they turned to Splunk. So Splunk allows you to thrive in this data age. Why not check them out today? S-P-L-U-N-K dot com slash D to E. That's Splunk dot com slash D to E. And... We're setting sail with Category Pirates. We are the newsletter authority on category design for people who want to see different. Go to Lockhead.com and subscribe to Category Pirates. All right. We would like to thank the legendary Dushka Zapata. Woo! If you love this episode as much as I did, why not uh, share with uh, 200 of the people that you love the most in the world? And do not forget, Dushka is making all of her books available for free on March 17th, 2021. Free on Amazon.com in ebook form for one day, March 17, 2021. Dushka Zapata. OneLifeFullyLived.org is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out. And if you want to make a difference, uh, particularly for people in the uh, underserved communities, One Life has been doing that for over a decade. Uh, why not write them a check? OneLifeFullyLived.org. My friends at Bottleneck.online have been uh, distant assistanting since being physically distant was a thing. <laughs> Say that 10 times fast. If you want a dedicated distant assistant, a human being powered with technology to help you get shit done, go to bottleneck.online, dedicated distant assistants. Often your website is the first thing that people see about your business. And just like your mom told you, you can only make one first impression. Visit Atrenet, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. If you're a B2B company in Silicon Valley and you want a legendary website, that's Atre.net. Also need you to know that your spouse emailed and she said it's okay. You can get that subscription to Category Pirates. Don't forget that legendary people and companies make justice deposits. Let's all move some of our money to black-owned banks so that they have more money to lend so we can give our black sisters and brothers fair access to capital. 
Make a justice deposit today. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Podcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J. do legendary technical execution. They built Lockhead.com, and they are building CategoryPirates.com. Show notes by the uh, wonderful Diane Gervasio. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. The left lane is the fast lane. Get out of the passing lane. Listen to Iggy Pop. Kathleen Madigan was right. Candy Dandy keeps all the trains running on time. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Jake and Jilly. Sorry, Jakey. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe. Take good care of each other. Of course, stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.